are working our way through the part of the book of Revelation where Jesus addresses seven churches, his seven letters to seven churches. And we're actually finding ourselves today in the sixth of the seven cities. He speaks to the church of Philadelphia today. Um, So turn to Revelation 3, and I think we're going to be in verse 7, it looks like. And uh, while you're turning there, I just recently read an article that was a write-up and a review of a book that just came out a couple months ago, written by David Zweig, and the name of the book is Invisibles, The Power of Anonymous Work in an Age of Relentless Self-Promotion, right? I've not read the book, I just read the review of the book, Um, so I don't know if it's good or not. You read it if you want. But in the book, in the book review, it talks about the research that went into the 10 most underappreciated jobs in North America, right? The 10 most underappreciated jobs. On this list, he starts off with wayfinders. Have you ever even heard of a wayfinder? No. It's, but it's because of these people that you find yourself where you're supposed to be at an airport. Baggage claim this way. Terminal C that way. The tram go behind you. You know how you just kind of end up where you're supposed to be? I usually, when I'm in an airport, I'm thinking, man, if I just do... There it is. There's the sign. And I just kind of magically end up where I'm supposed to be. A wayfinder is a person that does that professionally in airports. Interesting, isn't it? Of course, you've never appreciated them, have you? Right? means you're part of the problem right (laughs) cinematographers on this list and yet some of you are thinking what does a cinematographer do again exactly right not very appreciated it's not an appreciated part of the cast perfumers are on this list we usually think of the model we think of the design of the bottle we think of the commercials you don't ever think about the guy in the lab coat that's putting that thing together though do you no underappreciated structural engineers on this list Because we don't care about the people that design the walls that don't cave in on us. We just care if the walls don't cave in on us, right? Guitar technician is on here. Guitar technician. When's the last time you have thanked your local guitar technician? Right? Again, you're part of the problem. I hope you walk home with that today. UN interpreter on this list right? Does anyone even know it? Here's another one. Graphic designers, and that's because there's 400,000 of them in this city alone. Everyone's a graphic designer, knows a graphic designer, was a graphic designer, right? But no one appreciates any graphic designers. Also an anesthesiologist. Now I think this is a rig and it doesn't really belong on the list because if you've ever been in a hospital room with a woman who's about to have a baby, there is not a more important person on planet earth than the anesthesiologist. If it comes between husband and anesthesiologist, I'm sorry, man, we're out of that room. So I don't know why they're on this list. Understudies on this list of 10 of the most underappreciated jobs in North America. Understudy is a person who has to learn the role of someone who's on a Broadway cast or, or a, a, a cast of somewhat of a level to where if they were sick, they could actually step into the role and the show can go on. And bringing up number one on this list, Ghost Rider. Not like Ghost Rider, but Ghost Rider, right? These are the people that write a book, but it's not their name that's going to go on it. Someone else is going to get all the credit, and they go underappreciated, right? Now, the coolest thing about this list is if you're normal, you listened to that list and was wondering if your job was going to come up, weren't you? Some of you are like, I, he didn't list my job, but my job belongs on that list because I don't ever get any appreciation. No one ever sees what I do. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Being seen, because it's a really big deal. I'll explain. Let's go ahead and jump into the text, and you'll see where we're going. Revelation 3, these are the words of Jesus Christ, 
through John to the church. Now listen, as you've seen in these, before I even jump in, but as you've seen in these letters from week to week to week to week, Jesus is speaking to very specific churches. He's actually speaking to the leadership of some very specific churches. But every letter ends with the line that says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's to us. So not only is this a letter to the Church of Philadelphia, friends, it is a letter to you and me today, Knoxville, Tennessee in 2014. So he who has an ear to hear, listen to what the Lord says to us today. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of the trial that is coming on the world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray for just a second. Father, I thank you for this word, and there is a lot in that, it's, it, 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 and it seems very distant to us today has a lot of language we don't readily use today, has a lot of symbolism that we might not understand. So, Father, I, help, I just pray that you help us see this correctly and see how this shows us who you are more clearly. Father, help us see the gospel more adequately. Help us apply it to ourselves sufficiently. Lord, we love you and you're very good God to us. Help us with this word. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, Christ calls this church a church of little power, okay? Now listen, he's not, he's, not, he's not assaulting this church. He's not demeaning this church. The understructure of that phraseology, the language behind that, just means it's not a big church. It's not a large church. It's not a wealthy church. It's not an, even an influential church. It's not a highly, highly gifted church. It's just an ordinary church. It's an average church. It's a faithful one. It's one that he loves, but it's not spectacular, just faithful. Notice that there's no admonishments, no rebukes in this at all, right? Just, just love, just promise, just acknowledgement. So it's just a normal group of people. Their website was clunky, but they were faithful, right? Just ordinary people. The worship team was, ah, all right. The people who preached from time to time, they at least did the best they could. No one hip was ever going to be in your community group, Right? Just a normal, average, everyday group of people on ordinary routines and average jobs getting together with ordinary community, coming to a Sunday morning gathering where everything was ordinary. That's who he's talking to today. Now this city, um, the city of Philadelphia was situated in an area of Turkey that was actually right on a fault line. 
So they had a lot of earthquakes. So, so did the church that we've spoken of the last couple weeks as well. Some of these cities were all kind of clustered together, so lots of earthquakes. But it's not like uh, today where if we have an earthquake, it would take a long time to set everything back up and to fix roads and gas lines. Back then it would take a very, very long time, right? So what would happen is, is after earthquakes, people would be like, you know what, living in the city limits, not all that cool anymore. I'm getting out of the condo, we're going to the suburbs. Because if you live outside the city walls, your chances of living during an earthquake go up, right? Because you don't have these big towering walls and everything all around you. So not only do you have an ordinary average people doing ordinary average church, they're not even doing it in the city. They're doing it in the ordinary and average suburbs of this city. Now the thing about this ordinary people group is they were in a very extraordinary city. Philadelphia was anything but ordinary and anything but average. Philadelphia was a city that was considered Little Athens. That was the nickname that was given to it because it was a city that was nurturing and built and designed with the sole purpose of exporting culture. They wanted culture to go everywhere. That's why they had all these temples and all these gods and different ethnicities. So it was built because of where it was situated to send culture out. Very interesting little aspect is this church that was seemingly insignificant, was placed in a very significant city. And they too wanted to export culture, but they wanted it to be the gospel. They wanted the gospel to go out. How do we know that? How do we know that, Luke? I didn't see that from the word. Because Jesus calls them faithful. And that's what it means to be a faithful church. That's what it means to be a faithful Christian, right? To take the radical message of what rescued you and extend it to a city full of people that needed that same rescue, right? That's what it means to be faithful. This is why Spurgeon, we said a couple weeks ago, would always say that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. It's the same idea. It's not just gospel changing me. It's not just gospel radically altering me, but it's gospel altering the community of believers that I'm in because it's not just for the dead. It's also for the living. And it's also the gospel being extended and pressed out to a culture that radically needs to be redeemed by the message that redeems us. And what did Jesus do? Jesus gave them an open door. A little church, it's ordinary. He gave them an open door. Not only just an open door, but an open door that would not be closed. Jesus was going to shut doors that could not be open, and he had the keys. That means he has the power to do this very thing. And this open door was going to be to be a missionary people put together to reach a cultural area that needed that redemption. Think about open doors, though. Open doors come with certain things. Now, this isn't going to be on the screen, but just here, this is what Paul talks to the church in Corinth, another church plant. He tells this church, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective ministry is open to me, and there are many adversaries. And that's what comes with open doors. If you want open doors, you're going to get many adversaries adversaries big doors big devils that's the nature of the fight fight inside fight outside fighting coming in from every flank just turmoil internally turmoil externally everywhere you look there is something coming in something pressing something pushing that's the nature of the war that we're in this church was experiencing it he talks about fighting outside that's what we're going to look at the synagogue of satan which is a little bit of an interesting title for a church isn't it the synagogue of Satan was nothing more than a group of Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God and man. Did not believe that Jesus is who he said he was. Now in their mind, they loved God. In their mind, they had a passion for the things of God, and they didn't see a problem with how they were acting or what they believed. 
This was a group of Jewish people who believed that they loved God, but they thought that this church, this new church, with all the Jesus people, were a problem. They're the ones with heresy, they would say. Those are the guys that need to be stopped at all costs. They're the ones with a problem. This is the group that gave Paul so much trouble, stoning him, chasing him. This is the group that had so much to do with Christ being thrown up on a cross. Here it is. These people are dressed up as God's friends, yet God disagrees and he calls them Satan's church. Synagogue of Satan. He does not reserve his language for this group. You know, one weapon that the enemy will use against you as a believer, and if you're a believer, you're going to resonate to some degree with what I'm about to say. One weapon that the enemy will use against you is just simply the people around you. Just the people around you. There will always be people around you that do not believe in what you say. They're going to think they're right and you were wrong. Not only that, they're going to think that you're going to be hateful and intolerant and you might even need to be stopped. You might need to be silenced. You might need to be put down. Has anyone ever called you a fanatic before? Or being extreme, this was a label that was put on me very early. And okay, and I was a little immature and I probably was a tad extreme. But I was jettisoning all kinds of things off my life. And I was eating anything that looked like Jesus. I mean, if there's Jesus about, I mean, if it's anything about Jesus, tell me when and where what I need to do and I'm in the middle of it. I'll do anything to grow, anything to see more Jesus. And I had a lot of people around me. Some of you, especially if you're younger, can remember maybe that's happening to you now. People saying, hey, hey, hey. Just be a little bit more logical. That's a popular word. Step back and use a little bit more moderation, which is another favorite word. You're being a little fanatical. You're being a little crazy. What about hateful? Have you ever been called hateful before? We looked at this a few weeks ago, the tolerant church, when we looked at that. But you're just so intolerant. Are you mean to tell me that all homosexuals are going to go to hell? Is that what you're saying? They'll invent things that you didn't even say. You'll find yourself representing a whole Christian nation when anything comes out of anyone's mouth. Things will be said. You believe this? No, 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 no. I don't believe that. You'll be labeled all kinds of things. Has that already happened to some of you? What about crazy? You'll be called crazy. You mean to tell me? You mean to tell me that you give money to the church? Don't you know that they buy private jets with that money? Don't you know that they have like golden toilet seats? I can't believe you do that. You mean to tell me you volunteer up there on your weekend? Oh my goodness, you're crazy. Now the closer they get to you, relationally, we start to listen to them. Maybe they're right. Maybe they have a point. I mean, what they're saying doesn't sound too dumb. Maybe, maybe I need to listen to what they're saying. Where does this come from for you? Where does this assault? Does it come from bosses, coworkers, other students, professors? Hey, parents, does it come from friends, relatives? Where do these voices come at you from? Now, the closer it is to you relationally, the more it's going to hurt. What that means is this. Your professor and your bosses might have some ideas about Jesus that it doesn't really affect me that much. I mean, I want them to become Christ followers, and I want the city to change. But, I mean, I'm not going home. I'm not losing any sleep over that, to be straight up with you. But you are, most likely, because it's closer to you relationally. The church down the street, what they believe about our doctrine, I could care less. I don't care what they believe about our doctrine. 
But if our elders cared about what I believed in my doctrine, now it's going to make some difference. If my wife disagreed with my doctrine, it's going to make a difference because we're closer relationally. And that's the way these voices work. The world's truth will come to you and it will sound like this. You are wrong and we are right. So God comes into this and what does He say to this church? He says, oh no, 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 no. There will be a day where they will see that they were wrong and you were right and that I loved you, he says to the Philadelphian church. I loved you. Oh, and by the way, he says, they can't take anything from you. They can't silence you. They, they can't stop you. You see, there's one thing when it comes to just being rejected, but whenever the people rejecting you are bosses and professors and people who have authority over you, it changes a little bit, doesn't it? Well, they can take something from me. They could pull something from me. They can remove something from me. Now it becomes very personal and very scary. What he is saying is, I am opening doors. I'm the one that opens doors. Your boss doesn't open a thing. I'm the one that shuts doors. Your professor's not in charge. I'm in charge. That's what he says. And look who's got the keys. I've got the keys. A phrase I use in counseling in college all the time. I use it a lot, and if I've had any experience with you or have grown with you at all, I know you've heard me say this, and it is this. You are never at the mercy of man, and you are never at the mercy of moment. You are only at the mercy of God's right hand. That's very important for you to know. Staple it to your cortex. It's important for you to know. You are never, friends, never, ever, never for even one second at the mercy of man. It doesn't matter how bad it looks. You're never at the mercy of a moment. You are only at the mercy of of God's right hand. Sometimes the enemy will use people. People will be used to dissuade you. And why does the enemy do this, by the way? Let's look at that for a minute. Why does the enemy do this? Because he hates us. He does hate us, but in our fight's not really with the people that bring all the turbulence and static to our life. It's not with them. I mean, that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. That, that's not where your fight is. It's with cosmic powers and authorities and principalities, and that's where it's with, right? So the, the enemy of our soul hates you, prowls around like a roaring lion, waiting for the perfect chance, and then he'll jump out and grab you. Why you? What did you do? What did you do to get so much attention? What did you do to get so much wrath from the enemy? The answer is not very much. His beef is with God. Our enemy hates God, but he can't do anything about that. He can't hurt God. God's not intimidated. He can't dent God. He can't ding God. He can't push God on his heels, so he comes after you. Why? Because you're in his image. When we are created, we are created in the image of God. We have a will. We have emotions. We have creativity. We look like God, and when you become a Christian and the Holy Ghost fills you, you look even more like God. And then day by day, even though you're falling apart outwardly, inwardly, you start to look more and more like Jesus. And guess what? The enemy hates you even more. And he comes right after you again and again and again and again. And some of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? If you've ever dated anyone in junior high, you know, or middle school, uh, you probably have had these days, and if not, I'm all alone up here, but you probably have had these days where you, had, you went through a bad breakup right? He or she did you wrong. And you're, you're hurt inside. So you're in your room listening to all the songs that you guys used to dedicate to each other on the radio, <laughs> flipping through old photos. And what do you do? You see that person in your photo, but that's a good picture of you. So you take out a Sharpie, you mark their face out, you know. 
Or you get scissors and you cut them out, you know? Because I'm not going to let them screw that memory up of me, right? Isn't that what we do? I think it was on the news once this girl just got did wrong in a relationship. So what she did is she took Beyonce's face and photoshopped it over her boyfriend or her ex and all of her photos. So she's hanging out with Beyonce the whole time. That's what I'm talking about. We, now, why do we do that? Why do we do something like that? It's because it's the closest thing you can do to taking a jab at them. You're not going to walk up to them with a marker and mark all over their face. And you're not going to cut them with scissors, or you better not. I'm suggesting you don't do that. But that's the closest thing you have to their glory. That image, it's the most wrath you can pull out and feel that justification inside. Friends, that's why the enemy is coming after you. You are an ambassador. You're in an image and an imprint. All right? It's important that you know that. They had external enemies. And sometimes that external strife you feel, it's from people. Sometimes it's internally. And, l- and I'm just going to say this. I think this is the worst of the two. It's the lies in our head. It's the lies we, we tell ourselves. Sometimes it even comes out verbally. I think sometimes we get discouraged. I, if you read between the lines, this looks like a church that might have struggled with encouragement a little bit. They were of little power in a city that had great power. Right? I mean, look at these big temples with these devout believers, and everyone's got cool clothes on, and we're ordinary, you know, and everyone's got so much talent. And you know that they've heard of other churches. You know they heard of Corinth, Ephesus. I mean, Corinth, everyone had a guitar. Everyone went to worship school. Everyone could teach at Corinth. You know, of course, no one listened to any teaching, but they're all incredibly gifted. But not this church. It must have felt small for them, tiny. And I could hear in my mind what I bet they said in theirs. Does any of this matter? Does any of this matter? Does anyone see what I'm doing right now? Am I totally ineffective? I mean, am I really as insignificant as I feel right now at this moment? Does any of this bearing any fruit? Does anyone see or recognize what I'm doing? Has this ever crossed your mind? Goodness, it's crossed mine. A bunch. Let this passage encourage you. God says this, I know your works. I see them. I see them all. I see every seed you have scattered, God says. Even if mankind doesn't see it. Even if those seeds don't develop to anything, I see it. I see everything. I see every sacrifice you made. I see every, every time you tried to do something really cool for God's glory, it just didn't work out. I see every time you did something with a bad motive. I see everything. I see your works. Let it encourage you. You are seen, viewed openly. You're not unseen. You're not underappreciated. You're not insignificant. You know it's easy to be encouraged whenever things around us are really bearing a lot of fruit. We see results. It's easy to be encouraged because... It's, it's evident before us. What you're doing is paying off, right? Circumstances are encouraging you. Results are encouraging you. But even Jesus says, don't let that be the source of your encouragement. Don't let that be the thing that brings validity to you. As he sends out his disciples two by two by two, they went out and they did some really cool things. There were some healings, and I'm sure that was really cool. There was, uh, they were casting out devils, which is a little freaky deaky, but I can see yourself walking out of a living room high-fiving everybody because that's something that is pretty, pretty cool, you know? And so they come back to Jesus and they're like, listen, we saw some cool stuff, and you could just see it. When you read the passage, you know they're excited when they're telling him, we did this and we saw this, and it was so much fun. And Jesus, he says, listen, 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 it's all cool. And I can see the same thing you could see. 
says this, though. Do not rejoice in this, though, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What is he saying? Is he stealing their thunder? No. Of course you could be encouraged by that. It was cool. God was glorified. Be encouraged. But that can't be the two legs that you stand on for your validity. You know why? Because there will be a day where you are just average. There will be days where you're ordinary. So Jesus says rejoice in this. The fact that you know him and he knows you and that the gospel is alive and beating inside of you and you've been kissed by grace and you will never be shaken, you will never be away from that for the rest of your eternity. He says rejoice in that. Let that be the backbone of how you see yourself and how you see me, but it cannot be the things you do. It cannot be the things you do. That's the lesson he's getting across here right now. God and his gospel simply do a better job of lifting your head than the results and the circumstances around you. They can never deliver what you really, really need. They can't do it. If you rely on your results for encouragement, if you rely on the circumstances around you for encouragement, you will always be ripped off. And if you rejoice only in the wins you see, well, friend, the losses are coming. What will that do to you exactly? It'll bury you. And that's the way we walk a lot of times. That's the way we live. I'm using this phrase, and I'm going to continue to use it through the sermon, the lifter of our head, and that comes from Psalm 3. The psalmist says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. That means you're my protection, my security. You are my glory, and you are the lifter of my head. And, th and that means just what it sounds like it means. Your head's down, which is usually a symbol of I'm very depressed, discouraged, down, cast, and then something lifts your head and brings encouragement. What is it that is lifting your head? It's either going to be the results you see around you, or it's going to be God and the news of his gospel and how that roots and establishes you. That's what's important for us to see here. But I mean, how about you? Does anyone in this room wonder, in their, don't raise your hand, does anyone wonder, does anything that I do, does it matter? Does this person see? Do they see? Does anyone see what I'm doing? How about it, married person? This is when it becomes hard. And listen, if you're not married, probably will be someday. This is how it looks, right? This is how it looks. Um, say, with my wife. Let's say she's been talking a lot lately about how I need to connect with her emotionally. So guys, you know what that means, right? It means not connecting just physically, and not connecting just socially, but learning who she is. What are her desires, her hopes, her fears, her wins, her losses, her struggles? Connecting to her emotionally. So if she says that, what if I start really, really putting things together to be more intentional about that? She comes home, I ask her how her day was, but that's not my only question. That's usually our only question, right, man? How was your day? And then that's usually it. And we assume that she's doing fine. But what, what are you struggling with these days? How are you feeling these days? What if I start really doing that? And I could feel, I could, I could feel like maybe something's being generated out of that. What if in three weeks we get in a fight, we get in an argument, and she says, you know what, I just, I wish you could just connect to me emotionally a little bit more. What is, married people, what does that do to you inside? Do you not see what I'm trying to do? Do you not see that that's what I've been doing? Do you not see that I've really been working hard? We want to be seen. We want our work to be noticed. But if you gain your sense of accomplishment 
And your sense of encouragement from your spouse's reaction to you, friends, listen, you're in for a world of hurt, aren't you? Am I right? Because they're never going to deliver on time. You're going to feel ripped off, distant, get offended, get bitter. That's what happens. You've got to gain your identity and your sense of encouragement from God alone so it won't dictate, it will not dictate how you engage your spouse. That's important. Now, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying or suggesting to you to not care about what your spouse says. So don't take me out of context on that. I'm saying don't demand from your spouse a certain reaction to make you feel a certain way. And that's what we do. We require it from them. I want you, spouse, to be the lifter of my head. I'm working hard. You need to recognize, lift my head so I feel a certain way inside. And that's where a lot of, that's where a lot of marriages go wrong. Right there. Right there. They require each other to lift each other's head. When that's God's job, they can never deliver. My wife does encourage me. She's a solid encouragement to me. But if God was not an encouragement to me at all, and I required it from her, it's abuse of her to a certain degree, and it's a fracture of my marriage. This is how it is in the real world. This is where this passage meets us today. And it could come out of, are you demanding things from your boss to radically improve the way you see yourself and to feel better about yourself? Are you requiring things from your kids, homeschool parents? Are you requiring things from your kids? They need to knock out straight A's and be smarter than the neighbor kids so that you feel like you are not failing. If you do that, you're demanding and requiring that they be the lifter of your head. Evangelist missionary, the people that you were sowing seeds of the gospel into, if they're not getting saved, that doesn't, listen, if they do, it cannot be what lifts your head. And if they don't, it can't be why your head stays low. Let God be the lifter of your head. It's very applicable anywhere. Volunteers, legacy volunteers. Oh man, this is almost a whole different sermon, so I can't go very far. I'm going to chase the rabbit for like 20 yards and then I'm going to come back, okay? Become group leaders. If you're a community group leader in this church, or you host it in your house, isn't it, isn't it frustrating? Don't you say to yourself, does anyone see what's going on? Don't they see my consistency and my work? It's hard work, isn't it? People come in late. They stay way too long. They're getting crumbs down in the couch. They drug mud in. And it's always, you're trying the best you can to lead a conversation. Of course, those are tough, aren't they? No one talks except for one person, and then they make it all about them. And then somebody is always crying, and you're like, oh my gosh, does this really matter? Does it really matter? I don't feel like it does. I don't feel like it does. I can't be the lifter of your head. Children's ministry worker. Listen, hear me clearly. There is not a more important ministry in this church than how we handle those children back there. Not. Simply not a more important ministry that we do here. But isn't it, isn't it hard? Don't you sit there with a kid in this arm and a kid in this arm in the nursery and they're crawling over this leg and it's hot in there? Isn't it easy to say, does any of this really matter? Does it really matter? I mean, I know we have to do this to keep the crying kids out of there. But are, are we just sequestering? I mean, does this really have an effect? Now, if I were to put you in a time machine and rev up the flux capacitor and send you forward 20, 25 years, and you were to bump into this person that says, hey, hey, I recognize you. Yeah, you held me in the nursery, and then I remember you teaching me in the 7 to 10 class. You're the reason I became a church planner. What you taught me, the lessons you put in me, it made a very, very big impact. 
And now 15 churches later, and my family loves Jesus, and woohoo! And if you were to hear that and get back in the time machine, come right back to 2014, you'd come out of that and tell the rest of the volunteers, it's worth it. It's worth it. Let's plow. It's great. But can't you see why that's not even adequate? Because what is lifting your head? Circumstances. Results. It's tough. Because you don't have that promise that that's going to happen. Sometimes when I'm done speaking here and the music starts, I walk down that hall, I walk through there, and I walk in there to talk to the, the, uh, the nursery toddler room because that's, that's where there's a lot of kids in there. And it's usually just to say, hey, is everyone okay? Do you guys need anything? And also to let them know we're almost done, you know, almost to let, because they've, they've got to have some. But when I, listen, when I walk in there, <laughs> sometimes it is just, Two, two and one in each arm and there's some kid just rolled over and bit him and pooped in his pants and it's just great not really no one's biting anyone <laughs> I'm sure that's never happened before but it's crazy and I look and I'm thinking in my mind everybody needs a medal of honor <laughs> and I'm pretty sure she needs like a purple heart because she's like missing some hair and it's all crazy it is it is hard isn't it easy to think does anyone see what I'm doing does anyone see what I'm doing God says, I do. I do. I see it all. I see that morning when you got up and you got dressed and you knew that you were going to be with kids that day. I saw your heart while you were in there, how you really loved that child. No one else saw that. And they might not appreciate you, but I appreciate you. God sees it all. Listen, I will fail to appreciate your work. All of our leadership will. If you volunteer here, I'll fail to do it. We, we just can't simply see everything that everybody does. And I hate it when people feel underappreciated, but that's just the nature of it. But you can't demand from us as leadership that we recognize you and be the lifter of your head. It's nice when we do lift your head. It's nice when we encourage you. It, I, I like to be encouraged, right? But it can't be the backbone and the foundation of how you function because you'll feel ripped off real fast, right? God not only sees your work, sees your work, but he knows your capacity. He knows your bandwidth. He knows your gifts and your talents. This church is a perfect example. Philadelphia was a church of little power. Now, was that on accident? When it all shook down, did God look from heaven and say, ah, oh, Corinth has all the firepower and this church is just kind of figuring it out. How do we like, how do we mix it up? I didn't even see that coming. Man, who, who didn't warn me of that? You know, who, someone should have told me this was going to... That's not what happened. It was by design that they were a church of little power that his muscle might be seen. That his muscle might be seen. You know, God is the one opening and shutting the doors. He's the one with the muscle. He's got all the power. He's got the keys, he says. Now, that phrase in there, the key of David... We don't have time to teach that, but on your own, you should go to Isaiah 22 because what you have is a passage written before Jesus walked the earth and a passage written after Jesus walked the earth and they actually are talking about the same thing, right? So what that basically means, if I got to the punchline, is, is whoever has the keys has the power, has the treasure and the authority of the house that they have the keys to, right? And he's basically saying, I have the keys to my father's house. So when I open something, it doesn't shut, Understand, and when I shut something, it doesn't open, right? Yesterday, I took our church planters and pastoral residents on a trip. 
a couple days ago, and so we're driving around Tennessee, and we're doing some fun stuff, and we're learning, and we're talking and training, and it's funny because you could, <laughs> you could take the bachelorhood out of a guy, but sometimes it's hard to take the guy out of bachelorhood, right? And so I'm like, all right, let's go, and they start, the shotgun battle starts, right? Shotgun. I already called shotgun. Mm-mm, shotgun, right? And then just words turn into this. Little elbows. I said, shotgun, shotgun, shotgun. And someone breaks out in a foot race, man, because now it doesn't matter who called it. Whoever has both hands on that handle, they're the ones sitting shotgun, right? So they're all busting and kicking and biting and grabbing the handle. But guess what? I got the keys. No one's getting in that truck until I decide you get in the truck. I get to say who rides shotgun. I have the power of shotgun. We're writing the rules right now, right? God says, I have the keys. I decide. What opens and what shuts a door? And nothing, and I mean nothing, gets in his way. Nothing. He has the muscle. He has the power. And what is the, what is the key he's referring to? What does it open? It opens a door for missional opportunity, for missionary opportunity. Again, this is in a city. This is in a city that is exporting its culture all over the known world at the time. And Jesus says, guess what? You are too. The gospel will go out from this church. Historically, it did. I think for 1,200 years, it did. It was a church planting church, if you look it up. We also know this because, and, it, and if you could throw it up on the screen, we're not going to teach off of this, but we're going to use this passage as an example. In Colossians, another church plant Paul is talking to, he says this, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door, a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ. Pray that God opens a door that we could extend the gospel. Listen, when God wants the gospel to go somewhere, it's going. Straight up. Nation, people, individual. When God decides the gospel is going somewhere, it's going. And what that does is it shows His power. It shows His strength. shows His brilliance. And it shows His compassion and grace. Because nobody deserves the gospel to come from anywhere to anywhere. We just finished the book of Jonah. Is that not what that was? God decided that the gospel was going to the Ninevites. And what stopped him? Nothing. Unlikely people, unlikely vessel, unlikely time, didn't matter. It's the God we serve. Listen, is it, is it so bad in God's eyes? Is it so bad in man's eyes to have little power? To be a people of little power, I mean. Is that so bad? God never said that they were immature. He just said that they were small. He just said they were ordinary. He just said that they weren't very wealthy or or very gifted, but that they were a faithful church. And it's amazing what God will do with ordinary, faithful people. It's amazing what God will do with average people who are faithful, who hold fast. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, we have this treasure in jar, what treasure? The gospel. If you read the passages before that, he's referring to the gospel truth, which is a treasure. He says, and we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Right? You start to ca- now, eight chapters later, he's taking that truth and he's applying it to his own life. Now he's kind of given this church plant of Corinth an insight into his own life by saying, this is how it works with me. 
He's given an illustration of basically the same teaching. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. What is he talking about? He's talking about this thorn that God gave him out of love and out of grace because Paul was such a powerful figure. He was anything but ordinary, anything but average. He was over the top. He was bigger than life. He was a big church planting apostle. And he got so big that God said, out of love for you to keep you from being prideful, I'm going to zap you with something. We don't know what it was, but it was something that brought his pride down a few notches. Turned him from a V8 to a six-cylinder. He didn't have the capacity and the bandwidth to do what he wanted to do. That's what's going on right here. And he says, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is made perfect in churches like Philadelphia. Perfect in believers like you. Perfect in Paul. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And then here it is. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friend, do you feel like no one sees your work? Do you feel underappreciated? Do you feel like you're insignificant? Do you feel like the things you do just doesn't matter very much? Boast in that. Rejoice in that. Let God's power rest on you, as Paul says. Let His power be made perfect in you, Paul says. You're perfect for God's power. You're perfect for God's grace. You're perfect for His love. So what is God asking of us? What does God ask of us in this moment then? He asks that we hold fast to this gospel truth. Hold fast. What that means is to seize with power and to grip. That's what the language means. To seize with power and to grip. Now, hold fast is something that God has said to these churches in the last three letters. I don't know if you've picked that up. He's saying it over and over and over again. Hold fast. Hold fast. Why is that important, though? Because we drop stuff. Pieces fall out of our gospel, right? Sometimes when, when my wife goes to bed and the kids are long asleep and maybe it's my day off or maybe I'm just all amped up and I watch a little TV, which is usually sci-fi, a little bit of a sci-fi dork. So everyone's asleep. I'm downstairs by myself, right? I go into the kitchen while Netflix is loading up and it takes a little while, but I can see the little, the little timer going up. It's like about to start. And I'm thinking, man, I really want to bring some food from A to B, but I'm too lazy to use a plate, right? Because you have to clean it when you're done. <laughs> again you could take the bachelorhood out of a bachelor <laughs> but I'm looking at it and I'm thinking can I make it over there I can make it A to B here to there I can make it I can make it and I make a run for it right and when I get to the couch and I sit down maybe I don't do this anymore by the way <laughs> I quit doing this years ago this is an example right so I look back on the floor and there's a line of food there's food on the floor so I have to pause Netflix get up and pick up all the food and bring it back to the chair What's happening? I didn't seize with power, and I'm dropping food everywhere. This is what we do with the gospel. Friends, it's what we do with the gospel. If you forget that God is strong, people become strong. If you forget that God is sovereign, then you become sovereign. You become reigning ruler. If you forget that God is in control, then you are in control. Do you see how this works? When little chunks, little pieces, little truths fall out of your gospel understanding, you drift away from truth. You drift away from truth. And then you demand other people lift your head. 
You start demanding things that should not be demanded. If you forget that God is gracious, then you think it comes by works and performance. Now you're either self-righteous or you're beaten down. Right? If you forget that God loves you, if you forget that God loves you, you will always feel underappreciated. And you will demand it from people. People far from you, people close to you. You will demand it. Holding fast means taking the gospel truth and applying it to your life often. One of the books we're going through right here is, um, as a church planter residency is Dangerous Calling. And Paul Tripp says this at one point. He says, if you are not feeding your soul on the realities of the presence, promise, and provisions of Christ, you will ask people, situations, and things around you to be the Messiah that they can never be. Hear this. If you are not attaching your identity to the unshakable love of your Savior, you will ask the things in your life to be your Savior, and that will never happen, he says. If you are not requiring yourself to get your deepest sense of well-being vertically, you will shop for it horizontally, and you will always, always, always come up empty. If you are not resting in the one true gospel, preaching it to yourself over and over and over and over again, you will look to another person to meet the needs of your unsettled heart and you will always feel ripped off and abandoned. You have to hold fast to the gospel. Let God be the lifter of your head. People and situations can never do that for you. And then what is God, and as I finish with this, God gives us promises to those who hold fast. To those who hold fast, He will hold fast. The beautiful thing about God as a promise maker is He gives us promises to promise breakers. We don't keep promises, come on. Not even on our best days. We don't keep promises. We are promise breakers with each other, with God, but He makes a promise that can't be broken. That's a beautiful part of who God is. He says this in verse 12. Don't, don't worry about going back to a Christian. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. What he is saying is this, is that you will be established, for those of you who hold fast and truly understand the gospel and are Christians, you will be established in his temple. Now, there is no temple in heaven. Okay. Some of you might not have known that. There is no temple in heaven. The temple was a place where God's presence was found. In heaven, God's presence is there. He, he is the temple there. I guess you could say it that way, right? He says he's going to establish us as pillars in there, in strength. Okay, that's what that means, the language in that. He will establish us with strength as pillars. And now, now why, is this, why is this helpful for this church? Because it was a church of earthquakes, Often, lots of earthquakes. Where do people run whenever there's an earthquake? Door jams, pillars, archways. That was always a source of strength for them. Earthquakes, shaking would come. Things would stir and people would just dart for columns. They would dart for, for some sort of a pillar. And he's like, I am going to put you there and through all the shaking you will be made strong, established, rooted. It's important for them to hear it this way would have been noteworthy. It's a beautiful city, a new Jerusalem, a reversal of the curse that had happened in the garden where everything, everything is undone that was sin. Augustine would say, 
Who would not yearn for that city out of which no friend departs and into which no enemy enters? It's a beautiful description of it. So I have a couple questions for two groups of people in here, and then we're going to worship, right? I think some of you are feeling underappreciated. Maybe most of you, in some way, shape, or form, are feeling underappreciated, whether it's with your spouse or at work or at school or with your friends or something, relationally. And you feel like you're insignificant and ineffective. Rejoice in being ineffective and weak. Rejoice in that. Boast in it. Let God be strong. And if you feel like maybe you're underappreciated, who is it? Let me ask you, who are you requiring to lift your head? Who are you demanding that validity from? Who are you begging and requiring and being forceful with? Maybe even turning on in order to get them to encourage you. Friend, it's not their job. It's not their job. That will break everything. God must be the lifter of your head. God says, I see your work. I see your work. But you know what? He saw Jesus' work first. Before he sees your work, he sees Jesus Christ's work. Which means that the works that you do don't validate you before God. They come because you are validated before God. Because we have a good God. Some of you were not established. Some of you, when the earth starts to tremble, metaphorically, when the earth quakes, you will not be rooted. Things will crumble around you and on top of you because you are distant from God. You are distant from Christ and you know that. You struggle with that even. I would say that what he's asking you to do is to hold fast. Hold fast to the truth that changes death from life. And what that means is this. You've been holding fast to you having reign and rule over your own life. You validate yourself. You are self-righteous because of the things you do. You are king. You are ruler. You are sovereign. You are messiah. What he's saying is to let go of that and hold fast to a different truth where you are no longer king, but he is king. And your acts no longer justify you, but Jesus Christ's singular act justifies you. Or you are no longer ruler and king, but you have a ruler and king. He's asking you to turn from one to the other. The gospel's not just about stop sinning. It's not just about stop sinning. It's about stop being a king. It's about to put your crown down at, at his feet. And that's what he's asking you to do. To hold fast to that gospel message and to call him king. Does that make sense? Amen? Go ahead and stand with me as the team comes out. And listen, what's about to happen right now, if you're a guest with us, we do, as Wes had said earlier, the bulk of our worship happens at this time because we want you to think about what you've seen and heard. We want you to meditate on the truth that has come. And listen, if you need to talk to somebody, if you're having a hard time letting God be the lifter of your head and you need someone to talk to you, we have people here that can help you. We'll have Wes in the back. We have Trevor standing in the back over there. We'll have Chris in the back. We'll have people that can talk to you. And listen, if you need to talk to somebody about your very own salvation, and you're not sure if you are or you're not, what, what it means, and you need to talk, those, those same people will be back there. You should talk to someone before you leave. Talk to someone before you leave. Don't let this time slip by. Okay? We have communion elements at the back on those two tables. So as a church, 
we believe in the visual gospel that is the communion, which means that the, the bread and the, and the grape juice back there, it's an image, it's a visual message to us of what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus Christ. And we get to take that as community. We get to take it one with each other. Right? It's a great time to really meditate on what God is doing in your life right now. Take it with somebody. Take it with your community group, with your spouse, with your family, with your roommate. But just feel free during the songs to just shuffle back there at, at your own rate. Spend as long as you need. Amen. But if communion is new to you, because Jesus is new to you, we ask you not to take the elements, but to take Jesus Christ instead into your life as King. Amen? Okay. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness to us. I thank you so much for your love. I thank you so much that when friends are pressing against me and professors and bosses and neighbors and family, all kind, Father, that you are a true friend. And there will be a day where everyone bows their knee and there won't be any more disagreements. There won't be any more fights over what is true and what is not and who is king and who is not. Those will be done. We will all be bowing down to the one true creator king. And you say in this word that it is at that time that the world will see that we are loved. And Father, I thank you for loving us. I feel loved. I feel loved. I feel loved because of what you've done through Jesus. How you've taken sinners and enemies and you've brought us as friends and family. I thank you for making a place for us at a table that we have no business being at. A dinner and a banquet that we have no business being able to take part in. But your grace to us is so beautiful and I thank you. And Lord, even as I put a sermon like this together, you remind me repeatedly of who I demand and require to lift my head. I want other people to see my works. I want other people to see what I do and don't. I want other people to validate me and encourage me. Father, I'm breaking into relationships by doing that. You, God, are the lifter of my head. You are my glory. You are the shield about me. And you, Father, are the lifter of my head. Lord, help us as a church always be able to match the gospel up with our life that we see which pieces we're dropping. What, what am I forgetting about you, God? What, what, what is dropping out of the beautiful truth that you've given us? Lord, we love you. We love you and we thank you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.